Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Avatar, the podcast. I, as you all know, am Booster Greg. And I make Corn Bandit. Are you, though? You could be I anyone. Am. It's true. She I is. am. It's true. I am the Acorn the, Bandit. The A Space Corn Bandit. <laughs> the single corn bandit. The single corn bandit. The singular <laughs> of the corn bandits. This week, we're going to be talking about book two, chapter 10, the library, or as we like to call it, the cost of knowledge. That's right. And... Before we get started into the episode, we just want to let everyone know that we have set up a Patreon page. We have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. You know, we we were looking at all the other cool podcasts in there like they're doing it. Let's just jump off of a bridge too and and, um, just get (laughs) it. Yeah, so that's super exciting. We have a couple different tiers set up right now. So if you go over to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast, you should be able to find it. We'll also include a link in the show notes as we usually do with any link that we talk about. And yeah, it's just something that we we set up and it's going to help us with a little bit of the upkeep of the podcast as well as some editing and, and stuff like that. So Every single dollar that gets uh, provided generously by anyone who chooses to do so will be put directly into the show for improvements and, and quality of life stuff for the two of us as well. Yeah. 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 This is a passion project. We know that our viewership is really passionate about Avatar. And so we wanted to make it available for anyone who wants to give back, who wants to support us. This is a really great way to directly impact and help the podcast and keep us up and running with all the things that we need to keep delivering these great episodes to you. That's right. And if you can't afford anything extra, we know these are trying times. The best way to support the show is still to tell your friends and family about it who enjoy Avatar The Last Airbender as well as leaving a five-star written review over on Apple Podcasts. And as always, just writing into us or tweeting at us. So, yeah. Yeah. Without further ado, let's talk about book two. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but I do that all the time. (laughs) 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 Book two, chapter 10, The Library. This episode was written by John O'Brien and was directed by Giancarlo Volpe. A fun little bit of trivia before we dive in. The Desert and this episode, The Library, were originally aired as a one-hour special that was called Avatar, The Fury of Aang. And we'll find out why next week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. We join Team Avatar in the middle of the desert with Aang sitting down in front of a couple of small holes in the ground. When Sokka asks what's under the ground, Toph almost ruins the surprise, but is interrupted by Aang. Aang then takes out a flute and plays a single note, and a groundhog pops up. He plays another note, another one pops up, so on and so forth. Basically, the more notes that he plays, the more groundhogs seem to pop up out of the ground. It sure is Groundhog Day. It really is. Ned, is that you? That's a Groundhog Day reference from... No, it's the other way around. It goes, it's me, Ned. That's what it was. I got it. Second try. Anyways, Momo turns the opportunity into a game of pretty much whack a groundhog. And she even chases one into one of its holes. Sokka interrupts the flute playing or the groundhog orchestra conducting, if you will, and reminds the group that they have more important things to worry about and they need to make a plan. 
Toph reminds Sokka that this is part of the plan. Everyone is picking mini vacations, but Sokka argues that they don't have time for mini vacations, to which Aang kind of reminds him that he's been training his little arrow off and definitely just needs a break. <laughs> Katara adds that there's nothing wrong with having a little fun in their downtime. This is, I think, the first big lesson of the episode, and it's within five minutes of it starting, is take time for yourself. Yeah, self-care. Yeah, Which is like... Sure. The, the buzzword of the year slash yes. last couple years, but it is something that is so important to remember. And it's something that I personally took a long time to learn. But now that I'm starting to focus on it more, it really makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yep. Self-care and self-love. Those yeah. are like the two big things that I think need to especially happen after this year. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Sokka reminds the group that Aang mastering all the elements is only part of their plan. They still don't know what to do after that. Do they just knock on the Fire Lord's front door or something like that? He continues to tell the group that they're going to need some intelligence if they're going to win this war. Katara weighs in and says they will finish their vacations first and then look for Sokka's intelligence. (laughs) I love that dig. That was so funny. Before we go into the next little segment, I do want to make a note about the little groundhog creatures. Mm-hmm. They live in colonies on wide open prairies near this desert, the Siwang Desert. And like ordinary groundhogs in our world, they feed off of insects and roots. And with an ear for music, they will respond to single tones from a flute or other instrument by repeating that tone back to the player like we see with Aang. And this musical ability attracts tourists from all over the world. So you can imagine that there's a lot of tourists who come through here, find their way to the Misty Palms Oasis, and really make a vacation out of it. There is a little goof in this part, which is kind of funny, and I completely blew past it all the times I watched it until I actually read the goofs. Oh, yeah? Where even though it's only a singular note that is played by Aang on his flute, he keeps on moving his fingers around (laughs) as if he's playing more than one Oh, no. Which is like... Really, after all of the care that went into the Cave of Two Lovers and making sure that the the fingering looked at least accurate for, for Chong and his friends, yes. now they're just like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? It's fine. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. So, okay. Anyways, Katara picks the first stop on the mini vacation and chooses the Misty Palms Oasis from the map that Aang is holding. Aang mentions that he's been there before and it has a pristine natural ice spring. It's really one of nature's wonders. When they reach the oasis, it is anything but pristine. And Aang makes a joke about how ownership must have changed or something since his last visit here, which was probably over 100 years ago. So I'm going to go ahead and go on a limb and say probably, probably. (laughs) Uh, The gang walks into the entrance of a bar and a handful of rough and tough sandbenders are loitering outside. And of course, one of them spits on Sokka as he enters. That's course, uh, C-O-A-R-S-E, because sand is coarse, and also C-O-U-R-S-E. The best puns you have to explain <laughs> is what I found. That's what I found. The bar is full of seedy individuals who look like they've been there for quite some time. A few of the patrons are even passed out while they're sitting around, which is like... <laughs> I almost missed it the third time I watched it. I heard snoring. I was like, why is there snoring? And there's one guy blatantly face down, just like passed out at a table. Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> I like that. Also, I don't know if you caught Greg. I, I I would hope you did. Outside of the bar, there's this little like lantern thing that's hanging that kind of looks like the Death Star from Star Wars. I didn't even see that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. Yeah. It's so funny. You should. Because obviously, I think there's there's some connections here between 
Avatar in Star Wars and how um, yeah. and how Moss Eisley is the location for the cantina in Star Wars. And yes. There's definitely elements here that they I think they derived from that. Yeah, this episode in this bar specifically, they definitely had that kind of vibe. A man at the bar orders a mango fruit drink and the barkeep takes out two swords and slices and dices a large chunk of ice to create a bowl and cuts down some mangoes from the overhanging fruit and dices them up. After a few more ingredients are added, the man's drink is done, but is wasted as he accidentally bumps into Aang. No worries, I clean up easy, Aang assures the man and airbends the drink right off of his clothes. The man gasps and calls Aang a living relic. He cannot believe his luck, a live air nomad right in front of his eyes. The man introduces himself as Professor Zay, head of anthropology at Ba Sing Se University. He grabs Ang's arms and asks him, which temple does he hail from and what's the primary agricultural product? <laughs> Ang answers his first question, but then asks if fruit pies count as an agricultural product. The man scribbles down Ang's answers in delight. I love this character. <laughs> now, Professor, Professor Zay is voiced by Raphael Sbarge. I'm sure I'm butchering that last name, uh, but he has played Jiminy Cricket in Once Upon a Time. He was in Prison Break as Ralph Becker and in Justice League Unlimited as Dead Man, who is actually one of my favorite like D-list superheroes. Oh, wow. He's like, Booster Gold is like my favorite C-list, but Dead Man is like just a step below, I think, in my opinion. Um, he's also in Star Trek Voyager as Michael Jones. So Rob cannot yell at me because I, ref- <laughs> I told everyone this, this is a Star Trek thing. That's so good. I don't know about you, but I really want to have one of those drinks out of the little ice cup. That looks so mm-hmm. refreshing. And just in case anyone missed the connection, those little ice cups that the bartender uses are cut from the ice outside at that kind of like disintegrating little ice yeah. sculpture. I did. Yeah. This was fascinating. I never knew this before, but I learned that the iceberg in the center of the village is one of the world's natural wonders, which is obviously is why it was very much a tourist attraction and Aang knew about mm-hmm. it because it was a big draw. But the iceberg itself has spiritual properties, causing it to ascend from the sand a small amount each day, only for an equal amount to melt into the mist. The spiritual properties of the oasis attract various benign spirits and is an ideal location for practicing meditation. Although the iceberg is, for the most part, still preserved underneath the hot desert sand, the top is gradually cut down due to the high demand of the frozen drinks in the cantina. So I thought it was interesting that, you know, when you first look at it, it's like, oh, this is an oasis. It's like where there's a a natural spring or pool or something. So you think it's like this giant ice sculpture that's just gotten cut down over time. But I love to think that it's an iceberg where most of it is underneath the ground and it like pushes up each day. So even after 100 Mm. years, it's still there because there's more underneath the ground where you can't see it. Right. Yeah. And the fact that it is now just like over marketed or, or over harvested yeah. and now it's just like a little teeny like nubbin out of the ground, which also it did not escape me that there was like a stray dog just licking it randomly. <laughs> yes. And there's still so you have to imagine there's probably multiple stray dogs licking this thing and they're still harvesting it to make drink bowls out of. E- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sokka asks the man for a more current map as theirs seems to be a bit dated and Zay offers his own. Sokka is disappointed that the Fire Nation is not on the map and is a bit frustrated that they have yet to find a map of that place. Katara notes that the man has made a lot of trips out to the desert and the man informs her that they were all in vain. He has found many lost civilizations all over the Earth Kingdom, 
but he hasn't found the crown jewel yet. Wan Shitong's library. Uh, we learn from Zay that this is no ordinary library, and it is more valuable than gold. It is said to have a vast collection of knowledge, and knowledge is priceless after all. According to legend, it was built by the great knowledge spirit, Wan Shitong, with the help of his foxy knowledge seekers. <laughs> Sokka in this instance thinks that foxy is synonymous with sexy instead of meaning like an actual fox. Yeah. And Katara is quick to correct her brother. But Zay, what a character, says they're both right as the foxes are also handsome little creatures. <laughs> When the man continues to tell the legend of the library, Sokka interrupts and asks if this library would have information on the Fire Nation. And while Zay can't really answer that question, he kind of gives this answer that's like, well, if it's knowledge, it's probably here. So yes, question mark. Yeah. Sokka calls Dibs on the next stop for their mini vacation, and he wants to go to Wan Xing Tong's library. I love his next line. It's like the delivery. So this is something norm normally would be it would end with said no one ever. Yes. <laughs> but he goes, I would like to spend my vacation at the library. And it gets like super anime action <laughs> yeah. lines and he's all like exaggerated and he's just declaring this out. Kind of like imprisoned when Katara pretends to be an earthbender. Like, yes. I'll fight you earthbender style. But it's like he's a little more like honest with this delivery he's not like trying yes. to be sarcastic yeah he's just he's definitely like we're going to the library and it's like feels like an after school special it kind does of. <laughs> very much so yeah yeah there's a lot going on in this scene too that i want to point out because obviously zay puts down the map of the desert with a little dotted lines that kind of go out and just kind of fizzle out and then yeah. the map of the library itself with some script on the bottom. I read that the writing on the bottom of the library's illustration means Wan Shi Tong's mysterious library, which I thought was cool. Mm. And then also the desert itself, we're going to see a lot in the next two episodes. So I have a bit of information about it. There's a lot that goes on in here that we don't really see much. And I think until Korra, and I don't think I ever got to that part in Korra itself, but... The Siwang Desert is an arid region located in the Central Earth Kingdom. It is the largest, driest, and hottest desert on the planet, and due to its extreme climate, the region is almost impossible to successfully cross. Only a select few are mentally and physically capable of surviving in this desert for an extended period of time, let alone navigating through it. However, certain desert-dwelling people, such as the Siwang Sandbenders and the Beetle-Headed Merchants, have successfully adapted to the environment. Those are two groups of people we're going to see in the future, but I thought it was a cool little detail where not only does this world have every like climate and region that's populated by people, it's very cultured too. Mm. So the realities of living in an arid climate next to a desert is addressed in the way that people have adapted to the region. And I also read that the design of the Misty Palms Oasis bears many similarities to the Chinese region of Xinjiang, which is home to the world's largest population of Uyghurs. Hmm. This is also, if you remember back in the Blind Bandit episode, I believe this is also where a Fire Nation man hails from, at least according to the director's commentary. Oh, yeah. Where they said that he was a sandbender that migrated over to, I can't remember the name of the town now, but Toffstown, essentially. Oh, yeah. So the the wrestler is what you're talking about, right? The wrestler, yeah. yeah. The Fire Nation Man wrestler is a sandbender. Yeah. And he migrated over from this area, this general area, which, which is kind of blows cool. my mind because I swear I've seen this show so many times and I never caught that that one wrestler yep. 
in Toph's town was a sandbender. And I always thought this was the first time that we saw sandbenders in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, so it's like cool. a little almost like subtle foreshadowing, which is really nice. Also, sandbenders. I hate them. Anyways, moving <laughs> on. Uh, Sokka does his big declaration, right? And Sokka uh, and Toph is just kind of sitting there with her feet kicked up. By the way, her feet are super dirty, which is a super nice little detail that yeah. I appreciated. And she's also drinking one of the fruity drinks and asks when she gets to pick like her vacation destination. And Sokka pretty much tells her that she needs to work with them longer to qualify for a vacation time. <laughs> yeah. It's like such an HR like employer yeah. mentality. It was pretty funny, though. When the professor tells the group that he's been trying to find the library, but has been unsuccessful, Sokka offers to show him a real live sky bison. You actually have one? He asks in disbelief. When they return to Appa, there are sandbenders surrounding the poor air bison as intense music plays, foreshadowing that these guys are terrible. <laughs> Zai manages to scare them away by yelling at them and shooing them, which I found kind of weird because it's like these big tough guys missing teeth. They're like they're designed to be villains, essentially, from a visual standpoint, yeah. at least as far as 2005 is concerned or 2006 or seven at this point is concerned. And all Zai does is just go, okay, go away. Shoo, 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 shoo. It almost gives like, me like, like they're cats. Yeah. It, it almost reminds me of like the way someone in star Wars would, would respond to the Jawas, the little like yes. hooded guys with the glowing yeah. eyes. It's like, shoo, get out of here scavengers. Yeah. And the sandbenders remind me a lot of, of Jawas yeah. as well, or even just sand people in general, which is also like a different class of beings from star Wars. Anyways, I could talk about star Wars all day. Everyone knows that. <laughs> The group takes to the sky where the professor asks Appa if he is the last of his kind and to which Appa does his little like yawn talk noise thing. And Zai is elated that Appa seems to be responding to his questions, but <laughs> only wishes that he could understand the meaning. This part I really think is funny because Momo jumps up and starts screeching at him as if like conversationally and tries to just say something to Zai. And Zai is just like, shush, chatty monkey, shush. <laughs> Which I found interesting if you keep in mind the fan theory that Momo is a reincarnated monk Gyatso. So yeah. like he would be really wanting to talk to Momo this whole time, but he can't see that Momo is potentially monk Gyatso. Yeah. Even the fact that Momo is a lemur from the same place as Appa. So yeah. if you follow that logic, like Momo would have just as much to say as Appa would. Except for maybe the whole living in a different time thing. But yeah, I love that. Yeah. Shush, chatty monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Toph groans that this is taking so long and asks if this place even exists. And Zay mentions that some people think that this place doesn't exist at all. And Toph kind of does that whole like, well, you could have told us this before we took off to the skies. Uh, but it seems to ultimately kind of be ignored. It's important to note that I think here that Toph doesn't like riding on Appa because she's definitely out of her element. Yeah. Literally and metaphorically speaking. So she's always kind of like on edge and always really like clinging on to the saddle whenever she's up in the air with them. There it is. Toph excitedly points over the side of the saddle and everyone <laughs> is looking to where Toph is pointing. That's what it'll sound like when one of you spots it. She says as she casually reminds everyone that she is blind and does that like everyone's seen the gif where she's like waving her hand in front of her and, eyes like, to, to show everyone. Yeah, and <laughs> grinning. So I like this part a lot because it not only shows that everyone else forgets that Toph is blind from time to time. So I feel a little more OK yeah. when I'm like, oh, yeah, you're blind. And I think this whole episode is just a big reminder of uh, not just her strengths, but her limitations as well. Mm hmm. 
and how she doesn't take herself so seriously. She can still poke fun at, you know, the way that she experiences the world and how that interfaces with the way other people experience the world. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely has a different attitude about the world than you would think from the first episode Mm -hmm. or the first couple episodes where we saw her. So this is really definitely more flushing her out as an individual. Yeah. Sokka eventually spots a small tower in the sand below. The group lands next to it, but Katara dismisses it as the library is an enormous building, and this is just a singular tower. Suddenly, they see a sparkle in the distance, and a fox holding a scroll with its mouth is walking over a dune. Zay recognizes the fox as one of the knowledge seekers, which means that they must be close to the library. The fox then climbs the tower and jumps through a window. Sokka looks at the drawing of the library again and realizes that the tower they're seeing is actually the tower of the library, like the the tallest peak of the building, if you will. Yeah. So that means the library must be completely buried. Yeah. If no one's made the connection yet, that map they keep holding up with the drawing of the library looks very much like the Taj Mahal in our our world. Yeah, it does. Yeah, just without the giant pool in front of it. (laughs) Yes. A little too hot for that. Yeah, that's fair. It just evaporates immediately. <laughs> the professor gives an overdramatic reaction about the library being completely buried and oh, his life's work and all of this stuff. And then he kind of snaps out of it and takes out like the tiniest little like shovel you will ever see. I think it looks more like a teeny ice scoop to me. It personally. does. <laughs> and then declares that it's time to start excavating. Toph walks over to the tower and places her hand on it. She can feel and confirms that the library is intact inside and it's huge. Top is so cool. She's so cool. She literally just walks over with one hand. She goes, yep, it's there. It's fine. Stop digging. You're all good. Yep. Sokka notes that the foxy thing, which I love that name for it, went in through the window and they should all do the same. Toph passes on the adventure as books have never really been her thing. And again, another point where Katara is like, what you got? What you got against books? And she's like, I'm blind. They don't, they, they feel like paper yeah. to me. <laughs> I've held books before. They don't really do it for me. Yeah. But then she makes that little like audiobook nod. She goes, if, if anything, if you can listen to anything down there, <laughs> let me know. Okay, bye. Have fun. Yeah. Ang uh, tells Appa that he will never have to go underground again as the last time that it happened. It wasn't a great experience for him. So I'm going to just refer everyone to the cave of two lovers for that. Yeah. And leaves his friend outside with Toph. After an uncomfortable silence, Toph pretty much goes, sup to <laughs> Appa. Katara, Sokka, Aang, and Zay scale down the inside of the tower right into the library below. Zay is impressed with the design of the place and even points out the buttresses. The buttresses. The kids giggle as I did every time and do every time I hear the word buttress. <laughs> A flying buttress, the funniest architectural name for anything in the history of architecture. It, it is, though. It's very funny. Anyways. Uh, when they climb off the rope, they hear Wan Shi Tong and immediately hide. But the owl spirit hears them immediately and calls out to them. The professor smiles and leaves the safety of his hiding spot and introduces himself as the head of anthropology of Ba Sing Se University. Wan Xing Tong tells the professor that he should leave unless he wants to become a stuffed head of anthropology, which is a sick burn, by the oh, way. Oh, man. And he points over to like the other heads of like monsters or spirits or whatever they are. Uh, so a couple little little notes on this one. Uh, Wan Shitong is voiced by Hector Elizondo, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name and I apologize. 
you would recognize Hector from Pretty Woman, Runaway Bride, and The Princess Diaries. I'm pretty so we had this conversation last week, kind of we weren't recording it, um, where I was like, Princess Diaries wasn't really my bag, but was he? I have a I had a brief memory. Tell me if it was accurate okay. or not, because I think you've you've seen it. You I will defer to your expertise on the Princess Diaries okay. more than mine. Was he like her butler slash helper slash like I I have this like memory of him being like her helper. Essentially. Yeah, I think he was like okay. the personal assistant, butler, valet, like the kind of okay. everything for her grandmother. Okay. And he kind of had the hots for her grandmother, too, which was a nice little subplot. And her grandmother was Mary Poppins, right? Yes. Her grandmother. There yes. you go. Her grandmother was Mary there Poppins, showed up on her doorstep with a, a bag that was bigger on the inside. No, it was <laughs> played by the same woman. Um, yes. yeah. yeah, she was the queen of Genovia. Mm hmm. So Hector was also in Grey's Anatomy and has voiced the character Bane in Batman Mystery of the Batwoman, as well as Batman Rise of Sinshu. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So he's done quite a bit. Wan Shitong himself, uh, he's kind of represented as a barn owl or a serpent-like creature, as we'll see a little bit later. His neck gets really long and more serpenty as he's chasing mm -hmm. them. These are both animals that are considered symbols of knowledge in the real world. However... Owls aren't super bright in the real world, which is kind of funny that they've always had this like, I think it's in Roman and Chinese culture. They're always like, oh, yeah, the wise owl. But owls aren't actually super smart. Yeah. In real life. <laughs> also, um, yeah, the owl is considered a symbol of wisdom in Asia and is also a symbol of Athena slash Minerva, yes. the Greek or Roman goddess of wisdom. Yep, My old brain wasn't too far off on that one. While we're on the topic of uh, Wan Shitong, I wanted to talk about his name because his name is a phrase in Mandarin Chinese that means he who knows 10,000 things, a term he even uses to describe himself. However, his name is written on screen with characters that mean hall of immeasurable knowledge or literal 10,000 knowledge. The 10,000 things is also a Taoistic expression for all of creation. By introducing himself as he who knows 10,000 things, Wan Shitong is referring to himself as all-knowing. He also directly refers to himself as all-knowing when he tells Sokka to at least put in some effort when intending to lie to an all-knowing spirit being, which comes later. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I was trying to count how many things I knew after hearing that he he, know, he who knows 10,000 things. And I was like, I wonder how many things I know. What'd you get up to? I stopped at 100. <laughs> I was just like, I, I know more, but I'm just, I don't have time for this right now. Yeah. I got a life. I got things to do, which also kind of tells me that Wan Shidong just doesn't have a lot to do after he read the entire library. Yeah. So yeah, so Sokka, Katara, and Aang, they come out of hiding, right? And Sokka asks if this is the spirit who brought this library into the physical world. The owl says that he is and introduces himself as Wan Shitong, he who knows 10,000 things, and that they are all obviously humans who are no longer permitted in this study. Uh, when Aang asks what the spirit has against humans... Wan Shitong tells them that after a firebender came to this place a few years ago, Xiao, he was <laughs> looking to destroy his enemies and that all humans are basically the same. So people only ever come into this library to get knowledge to destroy their enemy, which is exactly why they're there. Whoopsie. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, it's always that one guy, that one girl who ruins it for the rest of us. And yet Sokka, yep. Sokka's kind of just trying to do the same thing. Sokka's the same, doing the same thing. 
Uh, this so a, a big little note I kind of just threw it in there. We do see Zhao in a flashback, like for just a brief yeah. second or two, and this is the last time that we see Zhao in Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah, not in the universe, but in this particular series. Yep, and that scene was one of the scenes that he talked about in the Siege of the North finale of Book One. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Sokka lies terribly and says that they are getting knowledge for knowledge's sake. The spirit is annoyed at the obvious fib, but appears to humor him as he is with the Avatar, after all, who is vouching for the terrible liar. After Aang promises not to abuse the knowledge, the spirit allows them to peruse his collection, but they must offer knowledge in return. Zay offers a tome, first edition. Wan Shitong is impressed. <laughs> Katara offers her waterbending scroll. Wan Shitong notes how stylish the illustrations are and is also impressed. Aang offers his wanted poster, and the spirit is a little less impressed. And Sokka ties a knot really quickly and calls it his special knot, which <laughs> technically counts as knowledge. Yep. You're not very bright, are you? The spirit asks Sokka, who accepts the knot and then flies away. Bright enough to fool you, Sokka says under his breath. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. This makes mm -hmm. me uncomfortable. Yes. So a little, little humorous part We'll see it a couple more times. The tome that Zay offers, we see twice more in this episode. Oh my gosh. So it was like a stock drawing and just kept reusing. I think so. Yeah, I think so. That concept, though, of having to contribute to the library's collection before being able to use it is similar, I found, to Umberto Eco's novel, The Name of the Rose, where the Abbey's li library may not be used without a priceless manuscript being handed to the abbot. So I don't know if that's directly where they got the concept from, but it does have a precedence in another literary work. I kind of like it's very offering knowledge for knowledge also has a very like communal feel to it. And mm -hmm. I've always viewed like knowledgeable people or or like the education i don't want to call it industry but like that world is always like cool like i i know something you know something let's tell each other then we'll both know more things yeah. maybe it's just because i'm watching the chef show and that's like a big like mentality of like <laughs> it cooks is. where it's like i cook for you you cook for me and we learn off each other and maybe we roast each other a little bit i don't know we'll see how it goes <laughs> yeah Okay, so back outside, Toph tries to make conversation with Appa. She explains to Appa how she kind of quote unquote sees things and notes that with the sand and like how like coarse and weird and shifting it always is, everything just seems really fuzzy to her. Not that there's anything wrong with fuzzy, by the way. It's just you can't <laughs> see. And Appa like almost took offense to yeah. that statement, it seemed like. So she quickly corrects herself. This is a little bit of foreshadowing for what's going to happen later, which, by the way, maybe not the super best idea to leave your best friend only guarded by someone who can't really see in this environment. Yeah. He's very weakened in this environment. But Well, I mean, there's no one around. There's no civilization. Aang was probably like, Appa's going to be so safe out here. There's no scary caves, no underground areas for him to get scared by. He'll just hang out here, yeah. you know, out in the sunshine. But yeah. as it turns out... Yeah, we won't worry about the sandbenders that were trying <laughs> to kidnap him earlier. No worries. Yeah. I do love that scene, though, where... Appa seems to be really interested in what Toph is saying and doing. They're like yeah, having yeah. a total bonding moment. And I, I love it. I do like how throughout this episode, Toph and Appa go from like kind of strangers to like becoming friends throughout yeah. this whole adventure, just like sitting down and hanging out together. So we go back inside the library and Team Avatar has taken up Wan Shitong's offer and are definitely perusing the crap out of the place. 
the foxy knowledge seeker puts away miscellaneous tomes and books while Sokka seems to be stuffing his bag. Katara lets Aang know that in a past life, he was left-handed. I always knew I was special, Aang replies. I'm special too. You're the avatar. You are special. I'm left-handed. I'm basically the avatar. (laughs) (laughs) A note about the knowledge seekers. If anyone hasn't picked up on this connection, the knowledge seekers are very similar to the Korean nine-tailed fox or kumiho which is said to be a mystical creature that brought books to the king in a golden age, as well as to the Japanese kitsune, fox spirits, which serve the deity Inari. Like the knowledge seekers, Mm. kitsune also sought knowledge and were said to earn multiple tales as they gained more knowledge. Interesting. I love that. Also, bestest boy in the whole library is that fox. Oh my gosh, I know. The sweetest. And also, I am 100% on the same page as Zay. This would be like my dream to go here. Not only is it beautiful, not only is it filled with the world's knowledge, but it has little cute fox creatures that can help you find books. Well, yes, I agree. While I'm not the largest reader in the world, I don't can't remember the last time I read a book, but I am a fan of the knowledge seeker. So I would go and just to give like head scratches and butt scratches to the knowledge seeker. That's what I want to do. Okay. Anyways. (laughs) Sokka wanders over to a podium of sorts, and it has like this burnt piece of parchment that's kind of like framed behind glass on top of it. The parchment reads, the darkest day in Fire Nation history, and has a date on the top. But any other information that would be relevant or that could describe more of this has been burnt off. Upon reading these words, Sokka realizes that this might be the secret to defeating the Fire Nation. Sokka pries the paper from the display and places it in his bag. I put a little side note in here. I guess he really did need this bag after all. (laughs) Mr. Why would you let me buy this? He's just stuffing all these tomes and like books and scrolls and everything in his bag. It's coming in so handy. It's so handy in this episode. He then takes off to the Fire Nation section of the library. This new discovery seems promising, and he wants to find out what happened to the Fire Nation on their darkest day. However... Once Sokka and the crew enter the Fire Nation section, they see that the entire area has been destroyed by firebenders. Sokka holds his head in frustration. He just can't seem to get ahead of the firebenders. Sokka collapses to his knees and looks up with a determined look on his face. He needs to know what happened on the darkest day. A small whimper is heard from behind Sokka, and the knowledge seeker points outside the room. The professor comments that it seems the fox is trying to assist Sokka. The group follows the knowledge seeker to a large round golden door that closely, in my opinion, resembles a sun. Mm. The fox disappears into a small opening next to the door, and the center of the door opens moments later. And the bestest boy, the seeker, is sitting on the other side with a big old smile on his face. (laughs) That part right there. Another little detail about the Knowledge Seekers. Apparently, they were designed by Angela Song Mueller, who designed the spirits after her Shiba Inu, Sophie. Except, oh, yeah. So, like, if you look at it, there's a couple scenes where you can see the shape of the tail and the shape of the head are very close to a Shiba Inu. But of course, the fox yeah. creatures have longer legs. Yeah, I was getting husky vibes off of it. Yeah, it's just because I, I'm I always think huskies. Yeah, true. <laughs> obvious reasons. Anyways, so the room they enter is just dark with the only light source coming in is from the previous room that they were just in. This new area appears to be painted to resemble a mountain landscape. 
and grass and stone are painted or kind of depicted on the ground. The seeker walks to the center of the room where a console sits with a lever next to it and then pushes on that lever. Suddenly, the room changes to a night sky and it is revealed that the spherical room is a planetarium. I got such like elementary school vibes and like mm-hmm. middle school vibes as soon as that started up. I was like, I want to go to a planetarium, but I can't right now. I know. <laughs> as it turns out, even though it definitely has like connections to or designs that are similar to planetariums, this was apparently the hardest or most difficult location to conceptualize and execute in the show. I actually saw a lot of concept art and they had like every angle, like little notes and footnotes saying like lights will go here and this part has like a crevice or a divot. So it allowed this thing to move. And apparently it took a lot for them to design this, but I think it turned out so well. I do too. Yeah, you you can tell a lot of thought and care went into the planetarium itself with how the mechanisms move. And like whenever you're designing something like this, it needs to look like it'll work. You can't just have like a sun and a moon just like going over magically, although maybe they could in Avatar. But it it gives it this sense of realism and the sense of I think more intelligent minds created it if it's like machines doing it, which is really cool, by the way, which is super advanced considering that this was probably even made centuries ago, I would imagine. Yeah. So that like puts into perspective the different cultures that were alive at the time. Yeah, for sure. Katara wonders out loud if the dials on the console represent dates and times and instructs her brother to try entering the date from the parchment he took earlier. Sokka hushes his sister quickly and tells her, not in front of a fox, he's (laughs) with the owl. And then (laughs) the fox is just kind of like, Oh, like he's so disappointed. Oh, I'm just trying to help. I'm your new friend. Yeah. Uh, Sokka then, not so secretly, glances at the parchment from his bag and uses the dials to input the date of the darkest day and then pushes the lever again. As day turns to night in the planetarium, Aang notes that Sokka picked the best mini vacation out of the group. I mean, I would agree. Take me to a library any day. It's, it was just a really cool library, too. There's like a lot of stuff in there. And it got a planetarium. What more do you want? Yeah. And doggos. So I, I agree as well. Something that I found, I don't remember if you mentioned this or not, but the pictures on the dial for this console are the Chinese Zodiac, which is for choosing the year. So that was pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. I did not mention that. I also read, and this is something that's new to me, apparently that like mechanism or machine in the center where they can like spin stuff and pick dates it was partially based off of or at least resembles the real world antikythera mechanism which was an ancient greek clockwork device used for calculating the positions of celestial bodies though it's significantly smaller in size the core mechanisms involved are similar and the date is inputted by adjusting those ring-shaped dials in varying sizes And so I went and looked this up. And of course, there's a lot of pictures of what it looks like today. So it's like super green and like oxidized Mm. and old and like broken looking. But it's really cool to see like just how advanced the technology was back then in ancient Greece. So similar to that, when you think back and go, man, what kind of civilizations were around to help build this library, even if like some of them were spirits, you know? Yeah, for sure. It also kind of reminded me of the TARDIS from Doctor Who, like the console. Oh my God, 100%. Yep. Yeah. 
kind of going back into Avatar. Not going to talk about Doctor Who. <laughs> that's, that's a, a whole, whole different thing. can of worms there. That's a whole. <laughs> <laughs> the room stops moving around and Aang thinks that Sokka broke the room since it's neither day nor night at the moment and the sun seems to be missing. Sokka takes another look and realizes that the room isn't broken, but the sun is behind the moon. The darkest day in the Fire Nation history is quite literally that. It was the day of a solar eclipse. Suddenly, it all makes sense to Sokka. And while he doesn't know exactly what happened on that day, he knows why it happened. Firebenders lose their bending during a solar eclipse. Dun, dun, dun. Katara recalls what happened to the waterbenders during the lunar eclipse as the seeker walks up to Sokka whining. Fine, you earned it. Sokka says to the fox and tosses him a tasty treat from his bag. Yay, good boy. Again, bag coming in handy again. Mm -hmm. Sokka finally has his plan. They need to get this information to the Earth King at Ba Sing Se and then wait until the next eclipse and then invade and then profit. Just kidding. Not profit. (laughs) Step one, invade the Fire Nation. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. (laughs) Profit. (laughs) Mortals are so predictable and such terrible liars. Eh. Suddenly, Wan Shitong enters the room behind Sokka. You betrayed my trust. From the beginning, you intended to misuse this knowledge for evil purposes. Sokka tries to explain that the Fire Nation are the bad guys and how badly the good guys need this information, but the spirit doesn't seem to care about which side is which. And with this betrayal, he begins to sink his own library even further into the desert and will take Team Avatar down with it. This part. Oh, my God. Like, I remember watching this as a kid and just getting so emotionally overwhelmed (laughs) by just like, oh, my gosh, they lied to this great big spirit. And now he's sinking the library. And oh, my gosh, all that knowledge is going away. Ah." This is also the second time that we've seen Aang blatantly lie. Yeah. Like that made me also super uncomfortable because Aang covered for Sokka and it's like he's supposed Mm -hmm. to be the bridge between the spirit world and the physical world. And he's just straight up lying to this owner of knowledge, this keeper of knowledge. And it's like this can only end badly. And guess what? It did. Yeah. Also, like I can kind of like play devil's advocate on it, too. Right. Because he's met other spirits that weren't exactly great. Like they're not like on the side of good. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't know where. Yeah. Like Ko exactly is who I'm thinking of. He doesn't know where uh, Wan Shitong kind of fits into this whole equation, but he knows where his friends do. Yeah. So he kind of, I think, uses that information to ally himself with Sokka. Because also, he's not going to throw his best friend under the bus with a giant owl spirit creepy thing that looks like it's right out of a Miyazaki movie. It does. He's just not going to do it. Yeah. All the spirits do, I feel. They look like, and I think, that, I mean, we know that's very purposefully done because they do take inspiration from his work. Yeah. The gang runs out of the planetarium and Wan Shitong chases them with his neck now elongated, almost like a serpent. Terrifying. It's terrifying. And his wings flapping violently. The way his wings were flapping, though, reminded me of the chickens from Orcarina of Time or Zelda when you hit them too much <gasps> oh and they start getting really angry. <laughs> it does. Oh, man. All right. So like. Here's the big thing with the spirit, too, is they have this whole idea of good versus evil. And we talked about this on a previous episode where you're like, there's shades of gray. And I was like, no, there's definitely like black and white in this scenario. Uh, So far in Avatar The Last Airbender, up until book two, it's been very black and white. Good guys, bad guys. Book two is very like gradient now Yep. because Wan Shi Tong is like, I don't care who's good or evil. You use my information for the same thing. 
whether you're Zhao using it to try to kill one of the spirits or you're Aang and you're trying to kill the Fire Lord. You're still killing ultimately. Yeah. And there's also this whole kind of ideology of like, do the good guys actually realize that they're good and the bad guys actually realize that they're bad? You know, like it's kind of yeah. like it's all perspective. So Wan Shitong kind of like takes himself out of that equation by just being all about knowledge. Yeah. He he doesn't care who's good, who's bad, just how his knowledge is used and just like what the facts are, which is also very dangerous. Yeah, because then, then you can remove yourself too much from the conversation and take too much of a neutral stance, right? Is that what you're right, saying? Right. Yeah. So like if if you're all about the facts and you don't care about a side, then you're no good to anyone, really. You can know everything, but if you don't use that knowledge for anything, what good is it? Mm, yeah, I see what you're saying. That like tickles my brain. It reminds me of a conversation from like like a philosophy 101 class. It's like one of those yeah. classic conversations of like, what is good? What is evil? And what is the neutral ground? Well, sure. Yeah. Like that's that all just shifts with time and with recollection and, and all of that. But like, do you think Ozai thinks he's a villain? Nope. He is the hero of his own story, as we all are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As is Aang, as is Sokka, as is everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's just kind of like, even like Zhao. Zhao is definitely the hero of his own story without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's the great General Zhao. Sorry, Admiral Zhao. <laughs> but yes, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. Like, we're talking about like good versus evil. And in book one, it was very much that. And now in book two, it's like, well, yeah, maybe not. And we're getting that more of this gray area as the kids are growing up, too, mm -hmm. which I really like that delivery method. Outside of the library, Appa lets out a groan and Toph, who has told him before many times that there will be no snuggling at all. <laughs> the tower begins to shake and sink into the ground. The two jump to their feet and Toph runs over to the tower and uses her earthbending to slow down the sinking process, which is super impressive. Yeah, like holy crap. Holding up an entire super large building. Like Taj Mahal sized library. Yes. Like she's going toe to toe with Wan Shitong at this point, essentially, yeah. with his power. And she's holding her own. Back inside the library, Zay tries to reason with Wan Shitong and begs him not to sink his vast collection of priceless tomes. When it's clear that the spirit is going to kill the professor, Aang uses his airbending to pull them out of harm's way and then sends another gust at the angry spirit, which knocks him off of the bridge and into the levels below. Aang tells the group that they need to get back to the surface, but Sokka is determined to find out when the next eclipse will occur and doesn't want to leave until they have this information. Oh boy. This is the only place that might have this information, and he tells Aang to come with him as the rest of the group heads for safety. Katara does try to protest, but this is cut short when Wan Shitong rushes through the aisles and divides the group by chasing Katara, the professor, and Momo. By the way... I am confident this is not the only place in the world where they can tell when a solar eclipse is going to happen again. I feel like there's a thing called a farmer's almanac, which I <laughs> would imagine exists in the world of Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, there probably is another, but I would say it's probably in like a major city, like maybe in Bossingsay, maybe at the Bossingsay University or something yeah. like that, which would take yeah. a lot of travel and like a lot of effort to get to. So I can see where or why Sokka is so driven to get the information here. Yeah. And but it's a risk, too. Like he oh, knows yeah. this information is here, even if he assumes it's somewhere else. You still don't know for a fact. So I can still kind of see it. But at the same time, I'm just like, I mean, Farmer's Almanac's pal. Come on. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm so distracted by the fact that I relate to Zay on a personal and spiritual level where they're running away from Wan Shitong and they he like flings himself into an aisle and then looks over and gets happy and like pulls out a book and it's like, ah, it's a book. Yeah. It's a book I want to look yeah. at. Like that's me in, in bookstores. It's a problem. I walk and I just like pull things off the shelf and I'm like, ooh, and I want to read this one. I want to read that mm-hmm. one. I used to do that all the time with um, graphic novels. I just get like a stack of them and just sit down at like a Borders or a Barnes and Noble or whatever and just go to town. Heck yeah. It was so much fun. That book that he pulls out, by the way, is the tome that he offered. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see it one more time as well. Don't you worry. It's also kind of interesting that he tries to reason with like an angered you know, spirit. Yeah. It's very much the the intellect kind of mentality of like, well, let's just reason. Yeah, let's There's just no use logic and let's reason, have a conversation, <laughs> see eye to eye. And a giant owl with like a snake neck is like coming right at them, <laughs> no, flapping his wings you. furiously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, back outside, Sandbenders manage to surround Appa while Toph is trying to hold up the library. When she yells, who's there? We all kind of collectively, I'm going to go on a limb and say, we all collectively remember yet again that she's actually blind. Yeah. She can't even really see like the way she sees all that well with all of the sand because it's still super fuzzy to her. Yeah. Sokka and Aang make their way back to the planetarium. When Aang asks, why are they doing this? Sokka explains that if they can see when the last solar eclipse happened, they can project when the next one will be. Sokka narrows down the date even further by only checking the dates before Sozin's comet for obvious reasons, which he tells Aang not to really think about, please. After some fiddling and adjustments, uh, they finally find when the next solar eclipse will be, and it's only a few months away. Yeah. Sokka jots this down really quickly, and the two friends make their way to the exit. Back outside, things are not looking too good for Appa as the sandbenders have gotten around and have surrounded the air bison and have even pinned him down with ropes. Toph tries to help him, but the second she lets go of the tower, it falls drastically, and since she can't aim, her attacks miss completely. She flails wildly around some more, but it's too late. The sandbenders have kidnapped Appa. This is heartbreaking. And she even, like, like cries. She's like, I'm sorry, Appa. And she, like, can't, like, even look in that direction to which she thinks might things might be happening. She's just, like, so focused on the tower and not having it sink further. She knows what will happen if she lets go. So it's like you yeah. have to choose who, who do you save? Your friends who are underground in a sinking library or your new friend, Appa, who's getting dragged away by sandbenders. That's an impossible choice. Yeah. Another thing in that scene, when the sandbenders are throwing their, their ropes over Appa and they're trying to drag him down, one of them, the camera zooms in to the fact that he wraps sand around his feet to kind of anchor him in place, which is very similar to the move that Katara does with water and ice when she was fighting Master Paku. That's right. Yeah. Back inside, Wan Shitong is chasing Katara and Momo around until they face off on the bridge. Katara assumes a defensive position, but the spirit tells her that he studied all of the different water styles, including foggy swamp style, so her water bending is useless. A triumphant horn is blown as Aang drops Sokka from above, who manages to knock the spirit out with a heavy book, which, yes, is the final time that we'll see in this episode <laughs> the tome that they offered to the spirit. I went back and double checked. Oh my god. <laughs> That's called Sokka style. Learn it. Sokka yells at his fallen opponent. Team Avatar begins to climb the rope to safety when Sokka sees Professor Zay sitting down behind a mountain of books. 
He has spent too long trying to find this place, and there's not another collection of knowledge like this on Earth. He has chosen to stay behind, and in his own words, I could spend an eternity here. And he will, because he's going to die down there. Yep. And his ghost is going to be wandering. <laughs> it's like a cautionary tale, almost, is what it, what it really is. The price of knowledge. <laughs> the price of knowledge. <laughs> the group respects his wishes, and they climb to safety. And I say respects his, his wishes, but they're really like... They were like, okay, right, fine, fine, whatever, bye. <laughs> Suit yourself. Toph is finally able to let go of the tower, and she is thrown back. We see a crater where the tower once stood. And this is where it's sad, actually, because what he just said, how her waterbending will have no effect because he's learned all of the different styles. That library mm-hmm. sinking means the last relics, the last remnants of the Southern waterbending style oh, are yeah. gone because the Southern water tribe lost their waterbending style with the loss of their waterbenders. The Northern mm-hmm. water tribe has their own style. The foggy swamp tribe has their own style. So now there's no one who knows how to bend with the Southern water bending style. The knowledge is gone. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I wonder if you could take the Foggy Swamp style and the Northern Water Tribe style and like see if there's any similarities. If you could like reverse engineer the (laughs) Southern Water Tribe style. Yeah. Anyways, Aang approaches Toph and asks where Appa went. And all Toph can do is shake her head while looking down and she's like holding her head too like she is visibly distraught yes ang tears up as he realizes that his friend has been taken and that's the episode cue the tears cue the waterworks cue the screaming yeah. at the sky and say no Appa. i know yeah this is the part that i've been dreading yep and I honestly forgot that it happened in the library. I thought it was Appa's Lost Days where we saw it, it was beginning, middle, end, and that was it. And I was like, nope, nope you're not that lucky, here. Greg. You're not getting out. It starts right here. All right. So as always, Acorn, I want to know who is your MVP for this episode? <laughs> the foxy knowledge seekers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. Why? Because she... You know, being such a new recruit, being such a new member of the team Avatar, as we saw with the last episode, she's still trying to find her her place in the group. She's a little bit of she's a little bit from left field. She has her own ideology, the things that she believes. She's a little bit abrasive. But even from this episode, we see how much she's grown into the group. They're a lot more comfortable with her. They're even though Sokka makes that jab about now nah, you got to spend more time before you earn vacation. They're, she's still accepted in the group and she returns in kind that kind of loyalty that they have with each other by trying to save them in the library. And I think really without her, they would have been lost under the Siwang Desert. So for that reason, she's my MVP. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, I think it's Sokka because of his a decision to go to this place, B his determination to take down the Fire Nation, and C being stubborn as hell. <laughs> he's actually has an actionable plan to help take down the Fire Nation, which is amazing for a fourteen or sixteen or however old he yeah. is. It's amazing for a teenager, yeah, on their own. So for me, it's Sokka, and also because he's my favorite character. Close second though, definitely the Foxy Knowledge Seekers. <laughs> yep, the bestest boy. So good. I was actually worried on that, that I was assuming his gender on it, but they do refer to him as a he. Oh, good. Specifically Sokka does. So I felt a little better about that. Uh, all right. So moral of the episode. 
It's always tougher. <laughs> it is always tougher. Um, pursue knowledge at your own peril, I guess. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's quite the moral. Uh-huh. I think the moral that I can take out of this episode is that if you're going to lie to an all-knowing being, just make sure you're pretty at least decent at lying. Yeah. <laughs> Because that didn't work out so well for them towards the end. Or maybe if you just want to make it even simpler, just don't lie to an all-seeing being. Just don't do it. I would say that's pretty good life advice right there. Like, you know, if you you encounter an all-knowing spirit or even just a spirit in general, maybe just like not lie to them. Yeah, for sure. That's a good life (laughs) Life, advice. Life hack. Life hack. hack. Rule to live by. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Yeah. So you never lie to a deity or an all-seeing spirit. And if they ask you if you're a god, say yes. That's from Ghostbusters. You always <laughs> say yes. All right. And that is all of the time that we have for this episode. I really enjoyed that episode. It's been one of it my favorites. Of this is one that I completely forgot about. Yeah. And I am so glad that I got to experience. It's almost like experiencing it again for the first time. And it's definitely a highlight for me for, of, of the season so far. Yeah. And remember... As always, if you want to join me when you're caught up on all the episodes or maybe taking a break from the episodes, you can always do so over at twitch.tv slash boostergreg. Uh, That's usually on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and on Twitter at boostergreg. Awesome. And you can find me online at Acorn Bandit. You can also find me on my website at joysons.com, J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com. If you're a fan of books like me, as we discussed in this episode, or a fan of the Final Fantasy series, specifically Final Fantasy X, I started a crazy new project where I wanted to write a commemoration novelization of the book in nine months, in time for the 20-year anniversary next July. So if you want to see what that process is like, you can follow me over on Twitter at FFXTheNovel or on ffxthenovel.com, where I'm going to be chronicling this journey. I've always wanted to be a writer. Life has taken me away from that. And this is going to be my uh, the dipping of the toe back into the writing world with a crazy idea I've had in my head for a long time. So if you're interested, come along for the ride. That's going to be so exciting. I didn't know you made a Twitter for it already. I'm going to... I did, yes. A Twitter, a tweeter, and a website. A tweeter. Maybe a pin. Who's to say? We'll find out. We'll we'll see. We'll see what the future (laughs) entails. All right. Coming up next time. The quenchiest beverage in the desert. And you and Shin Fu's white lotus snafu. (laughs) All this and more next time on Avatar Avatar, the the podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 